What to Know podcast explores best practices, innovation, and latest trends with industry experts with an eye toward helping you, the listener, stay ahead of the ever-changing marketing and communications landscape. Hello, this is Aaron Strout, CMO of W2O Group and the host of the What to Know podcast show. I am bringing you an episode from New York, from the International Culinary Center, and I am sitting across from Eric Murnigan. Um, he also has a, uh, a different, more uh, ethnic pronunciation of his last name, but uh, he is the president of the ICC. Um, we're going to get to know him a little bit better today. We're sitting in his offices down here on uh, Lower Manhattan. Welcome, Eric. Well, thank you, Aaron. I appreciate it. I look forward to this. Yeah, I am too. Um, I want to get into sort of your background. You have a, an interesting background. Uh, you mentioned something to me as we were sort of prepping and walking in that you've done some co-hosting on uh, a radio show. So it's always nice to have someone you know that has empathy and has walked in your shoes. Let's start by talking a little bit about your trajectory and, and looking at your LinkedIn. And it's always interesting to get the full story. But uh, one mad props for being a catamount. So University of Vermont, that always makes me happy. My oldest daughter, Olivia, uh, just started this year. And so she's really enjoying that. Uh, but two, it was interesting and probably not unlike a lot of people. It looks like you came out of school. Uh, you started worlds, started your, your career in more of the business worlds, you know, software. And then you kind of made a hard pivot around 2000 ish more into the culinary world. So I'm sure I'm missing some steps along there, but talk about sort of what led you from that to what I'm guessing is your true passion, you know, in really being in the culinary world. Sure. Um, so it's, it's interesting. I've noticed uh, during my tenure here that we've had a number of students who are also University of Vermont graduates. So perhaps I just noticed them more, but it seems that there's, um, you know, it's ingrained in the UVM student to somehow have a, a more appreciation for food in this industry than, than maybe others. But, um, you know, I guess uh, my short story is that uh, I grew up with um, uh, divorced parents, both of whom were really accomplished cooks. Uh, my father taught me the valuable lesson in dating that if you become a, a really good cook, uh, that's that can be very helpful. Um, so I honed that craft a little bit in college and, and thereafter. Um, but, you know, I, uh, no offense to your daughter, but I think at least when I was at, at UVM in the early 90s, UVM was a perfect place for really smart kids who were somewhat underachieving didn't, and didn't really know what they wanted to do. At least that was certainly my group of friends. Um, so, you know, after I graduated, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. But you, you got to move around. You got to find your way and, and try to find a way to make some money. But I, I felt like, um, you know, I was always passionate about food when I moved to to New York City from Chicago after having worked um, in technology at a phone company, not really exciting stuff, but um, you know, fairly, uh, uh, fairly useful in uh, developing a, a business career. I, I was still passionate about food and now I was surrounded by it. Um, and I lived in this neighborhood actually, I lived in, in um, Chinatown, uh, lower Manhattan and uh, you know, was a, a real big fan of eating in Chinatown, which I still am, and also really dabbling in, in what some of the prominent chefs in the city were doing here. And I, I started uh, gravitating towards that, and I wanted to become a chef. So I, I'm going to diverge a little bit and just ask you, because I'm always looking for great, authentic, you know, cuisine. Any tips on places to go if you're uh, in Chinatown in New York City? So I'm a big fan of uh, a real Chinese hot pot. And there used to be a place called Grand Sichuan. Apparently, there were 
six or seven of them in the city, although this one on the corner of Bowery and uh, Canal, actually more like Christian Canal, was apparently not associated with the others, and it was tremendous, but it went out of business. Um, I didn't think I'd find a place as good, but I think there's one that's actually better. And forgive me if I'm saying this wrong, it's Black Sheep or Red Sheep Mongolian Hot Pot, and it's on Bowery between Grand and Hester on the east side of the street, and it's fabulous, and I guess there's one in Philly and maybe a couple uh, around the country. Well, that's good to know, and we can look it up and include it in the notes because I did put you on the spot there. So let's fast forward a little bit, um, and, and you are now the president of the International Culinary Center You've been here for quite a while and held actually a number of different roles. Um, give us a little bit of background on the center. I know you've had some famous graduates. I think we were just learning about Elon Musk's brother, who I think you said was here, and then another guy named Bobby Flay, who some folks have probably heard of before. But uh, talk a little bit about your mission, maybe sort of what your journeys look like while you've been here. So I came here years ago um, with a focus on career services. I felt that uh, you know I had a unique perspective having uh, worked in the industry, uh, both as a chef de cuisine and as a food and beverage director uh, at a small hotel in Santa Fe. Um, I had some business background and, and I really wanted to come back and, and kind of speak to um, people like me. We've seen, you know, the school has seen a lot of career changers over the years. And so for people to, to come with business background or uh, editorial background or some other background into food and then try to forge a path, that can go a lot of different directions. Um, and certainly the traditional path is to be a, a, become a professional chef, uh, which is a great path to go and I think it opens a lot of doors. I wanted to come and be able to speak from my perspective uh, to those individuals and uh, I guess I was reasonably good at it and I really enjoyed it. Um, and, and time flies as you, as you know. But um, So I've been here ever since and, and worked in a lot of different capacities and I think it's um, I'm in a really unique perspective having uh, been a student here and having seen the industry uh, after being a student coming back and now um, running the school with the perspective of a really a student-focused approach, uh, but also having a really uh, keen understanding of faculty because I've worked directly with them as a student. And I think that's, that's the part that, um, that I think a lot of schools uh, don't have the luxury to, to have. And, and I'm really excited to be here. This is a, um, an amazing industry. I'm a food guy through and through. And um, I guess I never would have thought that I'd be uh, a high level administrator in education. But now that I have three kids in school, I realize I have a real passion for education as well. And so I'm glad to have developed that over the last uh, 10 years plus. Well, it's a great way to mix those passions, right? So business and being in academia and also helping, uh, you know, do something, doing something passionate and focusing in the culinary arts. Um, one of the questions I do want to ask, because a lot of the folks that we work with, you know, are in communications, marketing, and certainly an intersection of those two is social media. I know you all have your own social media team, but one of the things I imagine is important, and this comes from Ali Massey on my team, who's a uh, foodie, that social media and particularly videos and, and images um, are becoming such a critical part, right? So everybody that's out having a gorgeous meal, the first thing they want to do is take a picture of the presentation and post it on Instagram or, you know, if you're a Yelper or whatever. 
How do you help your students think about this? And I think you mentioned that there actually is a course that sort of helps people think about this because, you know, as business people, you may love food, you may love, you know, the restaurant industry or wherever you end up. But if you're not sort of using all these tools to be able to get the word out, then clearly you're, you're doing yourself a disservice. Yeah, so we've seen over the years, I mentioned we've had a lot of career changers uh, as students, uh, but career changer or not, we've seen over the years that our students are very entrepreneurial, um, and more and more so, I think, uh, in, in each passing year. So we've really put emphasis on that in our curriculum. We teach a, a culinary entrepreneurship course um, for, for biz food business startups uh, and focus heavily on marketing in that uh, program because marketing is key. We all know that. Um, and social media, especially uh, I think in the food business, just has um, such a wide reach. I mean, if you think about the Kogi barbecue truck years ago in California and, you know, people following the Twitter feed to find out where it's going to be, um, that was a really good early example of how to leverage social. And so uh, we put a lot of emphasis on it in that program. We also, for our uh, culinary and our pastry professional students, uh, while we may not have specific classes for social media, we do a lot of workshops for them. Uh, those workshops range from hands-on skill workshops to uh, more business-focused entrepreneurial workshops where we're talking uh, loosely about, um, you know, uh, thinking about real estate and P&Ls and social media and marketing, etc. cetera. Um, so I think it's a really important aspect in I mean, in business in general, um, guys like us are, uh, you know, a little bit older. And so I think we're learning from the younger people. My daughter who's in high school, certainly um, has given me plenty of lessons in, in how to, to leverage social for my own personal uh, profile. Um, but I think that the, the student body remains reasonably young. You know, they're mid-20s students, and so they have a pretty good grasp of social for themselves, and now we just need to help them leverage that into turning it into um, an asset for their budding businesses. Right, because I think one of the things we do encourage and see regularly is when social first came up back in the, you know, sort of late 2000s, there was this feeling that, oh, you're just out of college, you must know how to use social, like go do our social media for us. And while certainly understanding the tools and the etiquette is helpful, also understanding business is helpful, right? So that's a nice mix for you guys to bring to the table. I do want to add on to that because uh, it's a good segue. You also are an advisor for uh, an organization called Foodworks. Um, so think of, you know, incubator uh, and sort of, you know, uh, working space meets food. Talk a little bit about that and what trends you're seeing in terms of technology. And, you know, I, I think it's fascinating to me that you have one of the oldest industries in the world, right? We've been eating forever and preparing food and selling food forever. Uh, and it seems like just over the last 10 or 15 years, because of technology, there's this huge evolution of styles of food and what you can do and sous vide coming back into, you know, sort of um, uh, something that, you know, people like enjoy doing smoking, you know, all these different techniques that have been around for a long time, but people are really getting very scientific and technical about them. So I think technology certainly uh, helps there, but I think that the, um, the average American now and the average um, citizen of the world has a, a larger appetite for a wider variety of foods and preparations and techniques and people are cooking more at home and people are uh, thinking more about not only where their food is coming from but 
uh, food is much more than just a meal to sustain yourself. So everybody's a foodie, right? We like to talk about that around here. I, I like to say food enthusiast, but uh, most people say foodie. Um, Foodworks is really an interesting uh, business model, and I think it's it's leveraged that uh, that interest because it's really taking ideas um, and helping bring them to like like any incubator and helping bringing them to market. So many of those are are food product uh, CPG uh, ideas, uh, but others are small catering operations and people who need kitchen space and larger equipment to be able to produce their wares. That's a pretty simple concept and one that's not that innovative uh, in itself, but I think that uh, what Foodworks has done that really is innovative <coughs> is combined the educational component and the mentorship. So Foodworks um, has a lot of workshops for their uh, clients, for their cohorts, and uh, those workshops are taught by uh, really influential and successful people in our business, and those people provide that level of mentorship. There was an article recently, I think, in Fast Company uh, calling Foodworks the, the we work of the food industry. Um, and there's this kind of spun off after the initial idea, but we have a, a communal workspace there that's not kitchen space where people can go and uh, really work on those very things we just talked about, how to leverage social for their, uh, their business and uh, how to get that uh, P&L together and that business plan and business model canvas together. And the collaboration of ideas in that very WeWork style atmosphere has been, I think, equally, if not more successful than the opportunity to use the kitchen space and the, and the larger equipment and storage. So that's been a really fun project and I think one that um, is a great model for uh, cities around the country because we've got food entrepreneurs uh, popping up everywhere who need a little bit of help. Well, and I'm sure <clears throat> as someone that geeks out a little bit on mobile, you know, now that we have all this mobile technology where you literally can order anything from anywhere and now the distribution getting more and more complex with drones and sort of you know self-driving robots and cars um, you know, things services like DoorDash where you know there really is no shortage Amazon and Amazon now with Whole Foods uh, I can imagine that we're really only seeing the tip of the iceberg so I think that's a brilliant idea to be matchmaking between technology and food enthusiasts. I do like that term. It sounds a little more elegant than uh, just foodie. Feel free to use it anytime you like. I will, and I'll make sure that I give uh, give you attribution. <laughs> no need. Um, one of the other things that I did want to talk uh, a little bit about is just, you know, there are some general food trends. And actually, this is an interesting one that goes to the University of Vermont. Uh, they had made a commitment to really being uh, farm to table. I think their commitment was by like 2020, they wanted to have 22% of all the food in the cafeteria farm to table. Lo and behold, they were able to hit that number and exceed it last year. So clearly they're going to go well beyond that. But in general, there is this big movement of eating more local. Uh, also, this concept of like uh, snout, tail to snout, I think, you know, which is using more of the animal or the vegetable or the grain or whatever it is that you're looking at. So are these longer term trends and, you know, what's your take on that? Are they just, you know, sort of buzzy right now and they're going to fade into the, the fabric or will we see more and more of them? And is there anything like that that's coming? I know that's a, a long multi-part question. Yeah, no, I, I think it, it is changing. So historically, our grandparents were farm to table, right? Um, and then you start to 
to add uh, globalization and a lot more people in this world and uh, a lot more distribution channels and things started to move away from that. Um, you know, I, I think that the farm to table and, and snout to tail movement uh, have been around for quite some time. Uh, it's now commonplace for a restaurant to have that focus. And if a new restaurant doesn't have that focus, I think that they're in trouble. Um, those food enthusiasts around our country, and uh, you know, I see it in Europe and other places as well, demand that. And you know, when we're traveling, we want to sample the local beers, and we want to eat the local cuisines, and we want to taste the local produce. And uh, the beauty of it is, is that the you know the scientists um, who figured out how to to hybrid and morph and grow things really did it to try to. Uh, make more crop efficiency but when you think about taste taste is still local seasonal recently picked and so i think everything really starts with taste um so farm to table uh snout to tail is here to stay but where we're going with it now is to start to think about um food waste uh, much more so than we ever did and not just in restaurants um i think we these types of discussions often focus on restaurants but where a lot of this comes into play is in the home. Um, so to get my parents' generation to stop eating cantaloupe in January because it just doesn't really taste that good is the first step. And then if they stop doing that or they stop eating so much meat or whatever the case may be, then we're starting to, to make some changes. It's nice, once again, that the young people are starting to think more about this. So I think there's a, a seismic shift in progress. Um, but food waste is a big one. Um, you know, soil quality and soil to table um, and really, you know, getting to the root of the issue is getting to the roots of the, of the produce as well. Um, we do meatless Mondays here for staff meal. We call it family meal here, and uh, it's a tremendous benefit and really wonderful opportunity to eat what the students are cooking every day. And we do meatless Mondays just to cut down our carbon footprint a little bit. Um, and, you know, we can all uh, get more creative if we find ways to eat less meat. So I see, um, I see uh, campaigns like that and Dan Barber's Wasted uh, pop-up where he was serving amazing meals for, you know, a couple of months based on only food scraps. Uh, and we see other chefs picking up on that and, you know, having individual courses that are based on their scrap, I think is a real step in the right direction. And it's really just uh, taking farm to table to the next level. And so what will be the next one uh, beyond that? I think that's where it's going rather than farm to table being a, a trend that's going to die. It's only going to sprout more tentacles. That makes sense. And uh, obviously, with the world's needing, you know, as much greening as, as we can get and, and not greenwashing, but actual true focus on green and, and sustainability. I think those those make a ton of sense. Um, you were kind enough earlier to share one of your favorite places to dine. This is where I get into the little bit more personal, you know, let's get to know Eric. Uh, any other places either here in New York or elsewhere that are your you know one or two this is my Mecca. This is the place where I love to go and, or maybe it's a particular chef. So in New York, I recently ate at La Cuckoo and it lives up to Bill and it is just really remarkable. Daniel Rose is wildly talented. And I think that La Cuckoo is a really nice example of a restaurant that's doing, um, a really nice balance of traditional and contemporary. 
Um, and you know, for all of you who think French cuisine is dead, uh, try if, if you will to make a reservation at Le Cuckoo and give it a, a shot. It's really remarkable. Uh, my favorite food city is Parma, Italy. Uh, we have a partnership with a school in uh, Calorno, right outside of Parma, and we have a program that sends our students there, um, which is really exciting. So I have an opportunity to visit uh, on occasion. In Parma, um, I'll just put it this way, I was there for four and a half days this summer and I gained nine pounds. Um, obviously that's not sustainable, but uh, it's an amazing, amazing place to eat. And they've really um, held true, I think, to traditional Italian cuisine of that region, but they've seriously upped their game on the gelato front. And man, oh man, it is crazy. I was there for, uh, happened to be there for a food festival. And so it was, it was pretty outrageous. Um, and then Chinatown. I still maintain that uh, Chinatown Manhattan has so many little nooks and crannies of places where you can get great uh, inexpensive food. They're probably not quite as local and seasonal and sustainable as many of the, the other restaurants we'll dine at, uh, but they sure are pretty good. And it gives me um, just that continued connection to my roots in New York, even though I'm a, a suburbanite these days. Well, those are good recos. And I will tell you, I haven't been to Italy in a while, but, um, you know, anytime I'm there, I'm always amazed that things like pasta, right? That it's like, how could you make something that's so mundane, taste so amazingly different in, in gelato? Uh, I, I could be really dangerous being around good gelato full time. I do want to talk a little bit about, um, you know, who influences the, the influencers and who, you know, has sort of inspired you going along. And again, we did touch on the fact that you've had some famous folks here. Lots of celebrities now popping up in the food world, I think, as it becomes more of a mainstream thing and Food Network and uh, some of the channels have certainly helped do that. But, you know, anyone in particular in the food or non-food world that really has inspired you um, up till this point? Yeah, so it's interesting. I, I think about inspiration and inspirational people a fair amount. Um, I'm not the type of person who points to celebrities usually as... Um, being overly inspiring for me. I mean, certainly Michelle Obama and Roger Federer and people like that are really inspiring. They're really uh, amazing people, really good at what they do and and uh, strive for perfection. Um, but I, I tend to take little tidbits and nuggets from a lot of different people. Um, one of my favorite quotes is... Um, from Gary Player, the former, um, well, I guess maybe still a, a famous golf golfer. I'm not a golfer. But uh, when talking about luck, which I, I think a lot of people tell golfers they're lucky, um, his response was, um, you know, it's funny, the more I practice, the luckier I get. And I think that has a lot of value in a lot of contexts. And uh, for me, it's all about really striving for doing things the right way, practicing it, getting better, and not uh, not sitting back and feeling like things just happened because they happened. Um, so I look back at some of the people who have uh, helped me do that, um, and certainly not a household name, but Chef Henri Vienne, who was one of my instructors here a couple decades ago, taught me a very valuable lesson. Um, the lesson was pretty short and simple. I was doing something not especially right and he was in my face and upset me about it and after class he said look it's not personal 
it's never personal. It's about doing things the right way. And if you're not doing things the right way, someone needs to tell you about it. And so I think that helped me develop thick skin. And, and that lesson uh, is one that I, I definitely uh, remember um, and, and think about a lot. Um, from a, a famous person, especially in this industry standpoint, uh, my wife often comments that, uh, how I take for granted. Uh, just the other day, we were in the car, and she was driving, and my cell phone was ringing, and it was Jacques Pepin. And Jacques is a, a dean of ours, um, and so you know I do take it for granted that I have a, a really strong and great relationship with him, um, and that we talk. And, uh, and and so that's pretty special. Um, and people like Jacques Pepin are certainly very inspiring. Um, I really like to celebrate successful chefs who are not household names because I think that they're doing great things and they're doing what they love and they're doing what they want to do but I, I look at the the big shots and realize they put in a lot of hard work and a lot of effort and uh, and that in itself is inspiring so there's a laundry list of those people that I could talk about yeah, that last point is a really good one, and that is, <clears throat> I think we do take for granted, and back to your Gary Player comment, it's amazing, you know, the more I practice, the more luck, or, you know, the luckier I am, and I think that's what people don't realize. I have been lucky enough myself to meet people like Michael Mina, and we had an interview early days with um, Tyler Florence, and just how hard these people work, and how much they hustle, and how much they sacrifice, because they are flying, you know, all over the place, and and, you know, learning and, and have multiple projects going on. So, but I like the spectrum of what you presented. And I think it's nice to have the, the quote, right, where people need those things to help remind them of the importance of putting in the work and developing them. You know, people like to build things, right? People like to have a sense of accomplishment and they like to fuel their passion. And I think that the, the great thing about being in this industry is that I'm surrounded by people who are passionate about what they do all the time. I have a distinct advantage. I'm, I'm running a school that's teaching really interesting subject matter and our students are really engaged as a result. And our faculty and our deans are really accomplished people. And I think that um, you know, the, the trick for a lot of careers is really trying to find something that you enjoy. So if you're selling plumbing fixtures, that in itself might not be that interesting, but to, to make it a project that you're building something and that you're finding a sense of accomplishment in doing what you're doing, I think is, is important because you need to have that passion and not everyone is lucky enough to be able to have a passion like food that, back to my point, everybody's a foodie, right? I'm the guy who, at a cocktail party, when people say, what do you do? I say, I run a culinary school. I say, oh my gosh, that's so cool. What, you know, they have a follow-up question. And I'm standing next to my buddy who says, I'm a partner at an M&A law firm. And they turn and walk the other way. So it's, it's pretty good. Yeah, no, and, and it doesn't hurt that I think we have become such food enthusiasts and really sort of want to know more and, and explore. So um, that was one of the reasons I was excited to do this interview today. And uh, so for our last question, this is one as we wrap up, <clears throat> excuse me, that I like to ask everybody. Um, and it just, it's telling about, you know, I'm always surprised at what the answers look like. Um, if you're des on a deserted island, do you have one album, you know, for those of us that are old enough to remember albums that you could listen to, you know, in perpetuity, not necessarily your favorite, what would it be and why would you pick it? So... I'll ask a follow-up question. This is an album. This is a record. Presumably, then, I have the record player and the actual 
old school vinyl, correct? Yes, we and we don't worry about the fact that like where would you get the electricity right. yeah, from? No, and all that. Yeah, we don't. We're worry assuming about that. like Solgins Island, and you have a bike and you pedal the yep. bike, and yep. you know that powers the. Okay, so I um, I have a, a large record collection. Um, that's a longer story, but I do have a several thousand uh, album record collection. I will admit there's some stuff in there that I'm not really sure what it is. Um, but I think the answer for me is pretty easy because I'd like to have a record that I think should be in everybody's collection. And I'd like one that, that has different um, uh, different moods on it. So some that'll make you dance, some songs that'll make you dance, some songs that may make you cry, some songs that are gonna uh, just keep the beat. And for me, it's Sticky Fingers, R Rolling Stones. It's the best album cover ever uh, with the zipper if you actually have the original. And if you have a record collection and feel that you're a record collector, you must have that album. And if you listen to Can't, Can't You Hear Me Knocking and you don't start shaking a little bit, there's something wrong with you. So it's funny, I'm, this is 31 episodes in, and surprisingly, you're the first one to mention the Rolling Stones. And I'm a huge Rolling Stones fan. And certainly, I started to get back into some of the early days of the Rolling Stones. And I'm amazed and reminded how bluesy they were especially early and how diverse they were right so uh i love that and you're right that absolutely is probably one of the best and most uh sort of pushing the envelope especially for the time right in terms of album covers so uh i love that choice um we're gonna wrap up and so i want to just thank you eric for taking the time this is uh eric mernigan who is the president of the international culinary center I would be remiss if I did not give a shout out to Courtney Kramer of Pure Matter, who actually helped make the uh, introduction. So um, this is Aaron Stroud. I'm the CMO of W2O Group, the host of the What's Know podcast. Eric, thank you so much for taking the time today. Thanks, Aaron. Want more episodes of the What to Know podcast? We post a new episode every Thursday. Check them out on iTunes, the podcast app, and the podcast page at w2ogroup.com backslash what to know.